What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 174 of the Justin Inside podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and their journey through it. As always, I'm your host. My name is Tim Birkbeck, and we're fast approaching Christmas, apparently. Like, I'm very much underprepared, as I always am, but even more so this year. Um, hope people are kind of getting in the festive spirits as much as they can with this shitty year that is 2020. Um, this is going to be our last kind of regu- quote-unquote regular episode for the end of the year. Um, we'll be giving you our Records of the Year episode uh, next week on the run-up on the week that is the run-up to Christmas. Um, but yeah, just wanted to kind of quickly say that ahead of the show. Uh, ahead of the show? Ahead of the guest, I guess. Um, I'm rambling a little bit today. I'm doing this a bit... I usually kind of... Ha- construct what I'm going to say but I'm freewheeling it a little bit this week just because um not a whole lot kind of going on as always with everything at the moment I watched the Ayn Munra live stream of the weekend which was really fucking cool made me really miss that band one of the best bands I've seen live um and hopefully when live gigs become a thing again they will definitely be high on the priority list of bands to see if and when they come over to the UK or if I get a chance to go to Europe, or again, we'll wait and see. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything of note to kind of mention in terms of what's happened this week in music, but nothing really. Um, in terms of what I've been listening to, the new Taylor Swift record, of course, is fucking wonderful. Um, but nothing really new. I listened to the new Zulu EP, which came out earlier this year, quite a lot. The Combust EP that they did... I think it's two covers, I'm not too sure. That's definitely worth your time, worth checking out as well. Um, But yeah, nothing really new. The new Cold Luna song as well is pretty cool, if you're into your post-metal sort of stuff. Um, But yeah, nothing overly exciting to, to report this week in terms of everything, I guess. Um, so I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to get into this week's guest. But yeah, just as I said, we'll have our albums of the year next week. And then we're going to be taking uh, a little bit of a break until uh, New Year's Day, where we will have our second track by track record. Um, and then we'll probably return to normal proceedings um, around probably the 5th of January. So not too too long without regular regular guests I guess is the best way to say it um but yeah just having a little break over Christmas and New Year in some aspects just to have some downtime for a change um but yeah I've I've gone on way too long on this intro than I planned but hey ho that's what this podcast is all about um this week's guest I am joined by vocalists of uh Irish thrash metalers Gamma Bomb uh, Philly Byrne. Philly was kind enough to take some time out of his day to have a little chat with me surrounding the band's uh, new record, Sea Savage. Uh, this was recorded a little while before that came out. So again, there's references to the record, but obviously the record is now out. So people, please go check that out. It's definitely worth your time. Um, during the discussion, we talk about them kind of like starting in pubs and sort of doing covers of The Drifters to forming their own identity and their own aesthetic creating one of the the legendary mascots in metal nowadays 
um, in Snowy the Gamabomidable Yeti. I hope I've said that right. Um, and we also talk about him going through his own sort of struggles with his voice and undergoing sort of vocal surgery and the and going through operatic rehabilitation for that. And so he's still able to hit the high notes that have become so synonymous with Gamma Bomb. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And obviously a lot of talk about the new record as well. So, yeah, please sit back, enjoy the chat I have with Philly, and I'll see you on the other side. Right, so joining me this week on the Justin Insight podcast is vocalist of thrash metalers Gamma Bomb, Philly Burn. Philly, thank you very much for taking some time to have a little chat with me. Um, how How is everything? Like, I guess, like, we'll get into deeper sort of conversations of, of the record in a, in a moment, but obviously you guys have been quite sort of prolific in lockdown in, in some aspects. Yeah, it's been it's been going weird with me, same as it's been going for everyone else. It's been going weird, um, but uh, yeah, we've we've actually managed to do a hell of a lot this year. Uh, I think we kind of accidentally laid the groundwork for this years ago. I lived in London for a long time while the rest of the band were based here. Uh, myself and JR, our guitarist, both lived over there at the time, actually. So remote recording was kind of no mystery to us. Mm. You know, we made a couple of records. Our last few records were made in that way. So uh, that kind of laid the groundwork in a good way for us. And then I think we also, once lockdown was announced back in the springtime, I think we both went, we all went sort of equally mad at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Got really bored and started cracking up in different ways. Joe actually got coronavirus. Oh, shit. Was really bad. Um, yeah, Joe was pretty bad with it, man. He didn't have to go to hospital, but he was screwed up. Like, um, And uh, yeah, screwed him up for a couple of months, but he's okay now, thank God. But like, yeah, so like I think just with that all going on, we were all like, man, we need to do something here. And so we did like um, <clears throat> the first thing we did was a charity single, which was super easy because we had a song, a pre existing song lying around, kind of. Uh, and we just uh, gave that a, a spit and a polish and, and wrote some lyrics about the lockdown and shot a video in my mother in law's house. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, did that kind of thing. Uh, so, yeah, that, that, that worked and that proved we could record and get something done. So that led to us making a record and uh, making an album in record time. Mm. It took uh, seven months from start to finish to make yeah, an album. Yeah, so, yeah. I, this is the amazing thing. You can really focus when you have nothing else happening. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Like walking to the shop was extremely exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and just in terms of kind of like how things have been dealt with over in Ireland, because obviously I can only kind of attest to how things are here in England, but have, have things been handled decently from your perspective or is it just as much of a shit show there as it is here? You know what, man? I live in the Republic of Ireland, obviously. I'm from the North, so I'm from the UK, as it were. But um, in, in the Republic here, yeah, I have to say they actually have handled it pretty well. They've made some missteps. You know, they should have allowed pubs to reopen during that nice part of the year when there was a bit of life coming mm. back. Um, they only allowed pubs with food to open. But like, you know what, man, they actually have done a good job. You know, the, U the UK's issue is it has libertarians in government who don't believe in governance. So, you know, they keep having to be dragged by their, uh, by their, you know, uh, soup stained ties to <laughs> yeah. commit any kind of lockdowns or any of the other measures that make sense so like we've been in like you guys were put in lockdown when we're talking you guys were put in like two weeks ago we've already been in it for like four mm. weeks you know so like 
the numbers here aren't too insane, but it's still, yeah, it's still pretty depressing. Man. Yeah. Like, uh, I'm optimistic, though. I think a lot of things have just happened that, that bode really well. Those vaccines are the real deal, and it's going to take a little while before fit and healthy uh, people like us are given them. But uh, I think by the end of next year, or at least by the middle of 20, or by the latest, the middle of 22, we're all going to be able to go and enjoy real life again, you know, which will be amazing. Well, and kind of scary. That's the hope, anyway. <laughs> yeah and it'll be kind of scary yeah well we'll we'll get off the the dull talk of of coronavirus and we'll we'll get into the meat and veg of of what this show is all about um as i say i always like to kind of take my my guests back to their roots so how i kind of always open this up is to ask like what kind of got you into alternative music what was your kind of first exposure to it yeah so i um i am one of nine children oh wow on my dad's side and I'm one of seven children with my mom and my dad and um, I'm the youngest of seven in that house <clears throat> so growing up uh, it was just you know my mom worked nights and my dad worked a lot on his own business so you know we kind of raised ourselves Mad Max 3 style uh, <laughs> yeah. you know so at night time there was always a lot of that and you know my, I have four older brothers two older sisters and uh, just by virtue of when they were born they were all sort of rockers you know <clears throat> that's kind of the done thing so there was a from right from from dot there was a lot of influence from that you know my oldest brother eddie would have been listening to like zz top eliminator frankie goes to hollywood um and then you know gavin uh listened to uh, i think gavin had the biggest impact on me gavin listened to a lot of pogues buzzcocks sham 69 pistols and i explicitly remember rum sodomy and the lash by the pogues as a record being the first record I really remember because I used to look at the cover, you know, which is that um, yeah. Medusa um, sort of piss take painting. And it, he would listen, we would listen to that in the bedroom a lot. Me and the four boys all shared a bedroom, <laughs> which is a very 1920s Angela's. <laughs> I, can, I can assure you we were quite middle class, but we, there was five of us in the bedroom. And uh, so we would listen to things like, you know, Lily the Pink, uh, Who Killed Bambi by the Sex Pistol, or, and, you know, Tempo Tudor, Pogues, you know, there was a lot of that kind of punk and a little bit of Ramones and stuff. And then later on, um, you know, my brothers, when they were teenagers, I'd be a little kid and they had those amazing, I don't know if you remember, but like in the 80s and 90s, especially in the 90s, kind of really advanced CD ghetto blasters kind of became the... Yeah, yeah. And my brothers all had these most amazing, like these things that looked like Star Destroyers, you know, big CD mounted thing in the top or two CD players in the top and two... Yeah, yeah. So I used to sneak in when they were out and I would stick on CDs, you know, and everybody had their CD drawer and you could be murdered if you were caught. I was caught many times in the CD drawer. Um, but at that time, you know, I would just go in <clears throat> and I would listen to, my brother Ronan was really into Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, so I would listen to that. Gavin had Live After Death by Iron Maiden on a double cassette. And I remember that was a really big thing for me. I remember the cover, of course, I was familiar with Eddie from childhood, seeing pictures of Eddie and thinking he was really cool and really scary, as, as kids do. Um, mm. And I, excuse me, I'm drinking beer, of course, very on brand. <laughs> I remember the double cassette of that. I'm putting it on and Phantom of the Opera, it must have been side two of one of the cassettes. Phantom of the Opera was the first song and I was like, I remember laughing. I was on my own in his bedroom laughing at it because I was like, there's no way this music is serious. It was so fast. I was like, this can't, you know, the dig -a -dig -a -dig -a -dig. I said, there's no way this is serious. And then I read the lyrics. <clears throat> and I remember having this great revelation when I read the lyrics. This, you know, they're having fun. This isn't serious. They're, they're, mm. this, they're, 
their play acting, you know, and as an imaginative kid, that really, that really reached me, I think. And I think, you know, that, that kind of thing was a big deal for me. And so it was kind of, it was in the water for, from the off for me, you know, in 1989, when I was six, I had uh, the Appetite for Destruction crucifix drawn on my leather school satchel. Oh, wow. <laughs> into, yeah, but I didn't draw it. I got my brother, Mark, who loved GNR. Mm. So like, you, you know, and I'm probably going on too much of a journey here, but yeah. No, no, it's good. Growing up, growing up for me, music was a massive part of the sort of the culture we had in our house. And every Sunday morning in the 90s, there was a thing on RTE2, the Irish broadcaster. <clears throat> and they had a thing called the Beatbox every Sunday. And it was, you know, a presented show where they would show like Irish music videos, international music videos. And I remember seeing the video for Black Hole Sun on that, which had a huge impact on me. I became a massive Soundgarden fan, which really shaped a lot of the music I listened to as a teenager. But, uh, you know, we would all gather around after Sunday dinner, all the kids anyway, and we would all watch the beatbox together, sitting on the mm. floor room, you know. And that was stuff like Blur and Oasis and the Frank and Walters, Manic Street Preachers, you know, the Cranberries, and it was, and U2, and it was just the most incredible, the most incredible time then, you know. It was like music was, music was everywhere, but it was very hard to, it was very hard to access music videos and music culture. So, you know, we, that was like going to mass for us. Um, so like, yeah, like I was old enough to have an opinion on Blur versus Oasis and, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, Blur, Blur for me, you know. Um, yeah, so agreed, agreed. Yeah, yeah. And alternative music was just always a thing for me. And some of my friends, some of my friends were too. My best friend when I was a kid, Daniel, <clears throat> his mom in retrospect, God, she was really cool. She was an old, uh, well, not even old, she was probably like 34, man. I don't know, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> she was a heavy metal fan and he had a patch jacket and stuff and he had like bon he had Bon Jovi on vinyl and he had like an Iron Maiden poster. It was like we didn't know anything about the music, but you mm. know, he was he was kitted out for it. So there was always a bit of that. And then when I met Joe when I was eleven, Joe's mom, Angie, is like a like a bona fide old school hippie, you know. She was at Led Zeppelin in the Ulster Hall, sixty eight, Rolling Stones, Hyde Park, sixty nine, um, you know, nineteen seventy Isle of White Festival. She was there for everything. <clears throat> so I think although Joe and his brother Rory they didn't necessarily have much older brothers and sisters to get them into music their mum did mm. um, so when I met them they were already into Ugly Kid Joe and uh, you know they knew about Bob Dylan and the Beatles and uh, I think that sort of really chimed you know we were we were both into guitars and guitar music and you know we couldn't play the guitar but we liked the idea <laughs> and mm. it, it puts you on a kind of a trajectory then you know uh, I think we always imagined we would play in a band. I think we talked about it from we were 11 years old, you know. Mm. So that was just, just always a thing for me. Um, alternative music was just always there all my life, really. Mm. And you mentioned, obviously, like, being drawn to kind of, like, uh, Black Hole Sun and, and things like that, the kind of grunge sort yeah. side of things. But obviously, as you say, kind of, like, being around, like, family members that were kind of into the rock stuff. But was there... A specific bands that you can remember kind of you gravitating towards and you were sort of like this is my band whether you just dis discovered them off your own back or not or if it was one that your brothers kind of yeah i mean it's, it's kind of hard yeah i think the like there, there were bands that i was exposed to that i became obsessed with so when i was really little i loved guns and roses because they were but, mm. but they, they were everywhere in 1987 88 yeah yeah i was four or five six years old so of course you would say i like guns and roses I think, and then there was Aerosmith. I was obsessed with Aerosmith when I was like 10. And when I first met Joe, <clears throat> we went to this like real, we went to like, a, what would you call it? Like a comprehensive, like a high school. 
Um, and like, you know, it was a bit rough and all, but it was all the lads we went, we went to primary school with. And I remember a kid saying to me, what's your favorite band? And I was like, uh, Aerosmith. And they were like, Aerosmith, wah! And uh, they decided that that was a good nickname for me. So there are actually <laughs> a couple of people, there's still a couple of people in here who call me Aerosmith because, you know, being into anything was a bullying tactic, you know? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the first thing I really discovered for myself was Jimi Hendrix. Um, mm. When I was 12, um, when you're getting, when you're very much in the territory of your mum going, what do you want for Christmas? You know, which was really exciting. We were in uh, Woolworths in Newry, uh, in my hometown, and we were looking at the tapes. And my mum was like, well, if you want to get a tape, I'll get you a tape. And I was like, oh, my God, you know. <laughs> my, well, not just a single, you know, I can have an actual album. And I, I'd heard of Jimi Hendrix, and I knew about Foxy Lady because of um, Wayne's World. Yeah. And I saw the cover of um, the cassette of Experience Hendrix, which was the best of where he's got that famous photo of him. He's, he's wearing the the hussar jacket he has his hands on his hips and there's but there's lots of like gold leaf on top of the picture yeah yeah and i i was just like oh he looks you know he looks so cool and his clothes are so cool and that's Jimi hendrix so it can't go wrong you know and i remember she got that for me and i, I just started listening to it like crazy you know and then i got this book in like a pound bookshop you know one of those really cheap bookshops i got a book that was like Jimi hendrix studio diary which is actually in retrospect a super dense what the hell is a 12 year old going to get out of this you know talking about him, <laughs> yeah. him with buddy rich at the record plant and shit you know him with like your man ed saying you made his albums and stuff how they made electric Ladyland. it went over my head you know but i think those two things just really crystallized for me you know being able to learn about <clears throat> like learn about like um psychedelic music and learn about blues music and learn about hard rock through mm. this one tape um, and I think that probably had the biggest impact on me because I was very, it was the first time I sort of autonomously became attracted to like, um, hard rock, you know, and guitar rock, yeah. my own, like without anybody else. And I did the same thing as well. When I was, when about a year later, I went to, uh, I must have, I don't know how, but I had a few pounds and I went to the tape shop in town and I bought just on the strength of knowing their name, I bought the double cassette, uh, BBC sessions by Led Zeppelin. Um, okay. And I remember bringing it home and putting it on the tape deck in the, in the lounge and, uh, you know, the good room. And my brother Gavin walked in and he was like, Led Zeppelin, is it? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, do you get that? And I was like, yeah. He was like, good shout. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. so, whoa. And the crazy thing was, I remember as I listened through it, I was like, I know this song. I know this song. I know this song. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah. Was from, you know, the, you had a Black Dog, which was in Shooting Stars. You know, you had uh, a whole lot of love, which was the top of the pop seventies music. You know, I knew loads of that stuff already, and I think that that was that was an astonishing thing, especially like listening to Robert Plant's voice. I'd always been attracted to singers with high registers. You know, like Chris Cornell, um, um, Brucey, obviously, and then particularly Robert Plant as well. And I, you know, I used to sit around in the house when when I thought nobody could hear me and be like, oh, you know, singing along, <laughs> not really on that you can't do that loudly, you know, and I was like. Um, so yeah, like those were, those were kind of, th those were the thing. And then I think when I was a teenager, like my, my real, as I say, I saw the video for Black Hole Sun and I was very like, there's something in this that speaks to me, you know, the cynicism of it. It's strangely, it's very nineties now, but the, the, the sort of the, the cynicism and the pessimism of Black Hole Sun, I think really struck a chord with me and Chris Cornell's voice. And, you know, I thought he was so handsome, you know, in that kind of, yeah, yeah. In that kind of way where you're a little kid and, you know, you know, you nearly fancy your heroes, you know, it was kind of like, Oh God, he's so great. You know? Um, I think the, like 
Soundgarden were the band that I autonomously got crazy about, you know. Um, I remember I ran all the way across town, <clears throat> had to borrow like 20p from one friend and 50p from another friend and all this, and ran across all the way across town uh, with a huge heavy pocket full of change when the record shop was closing to buy the CD single of Pretty Noose, <laughs> which like, in retrospect <laughs> is just one of their songs. It's, it's from yeah. down on the upside, you know. <laughs> Uh, and uh, but uh, yeah, but God, I, I, you know, I wore a hole in it, listened to it so much, and I was very, I was very affected by their lyrics and stuff. And probably what was mm. my normal teenage phase, you know, there was a lot of listening to Alison Chains and Soundgarden, and yeah, Joe, you know, and we listened to a lot of Pearl Jam and stuff. And I think, uh, you know, in retrospect, I don't think I wasted any time in in <laughs> around. Do you know what I mean? I think like all those years you spend as a teenager sitting in your bedroom, like trying to write poems or watching films or, you know, self-abuse or listening to records. You know, I don't think that's time wasted. I think that's character building. And I think- Yeah, it, yeah, definitely. It, it gave me a massive grounding in a lot of the stuff that's helped me to do interesting things with my life, you know? Mm. And in terms of kind of like your musical exploration in terms of like actually playing music. Yeah. I, Obviously, with you kind of being surrounded by a big family and, as you say, like music being in the house all the time, were you like a musical family in that aspect or not? Was it more kind of like the listening rather than the participating? Yeah, that's interesting. So like my my mom and dad, you know, um, my mom and dad were like the perfect age to be there for the 60s perfect age mm. my dad's 76 my mom's 75 i think 74 75 um and they were the perfect age to be the carnaby street people to be the you know but they weren't you know they're from a different time and place you know they're yeah from, you know they're from ireland in the 1940s you know and my my mom and dad both definitely had interest in music but i think by the time i came along as the seventh of seven children I think a lot of that had just been pushed out of the frame. You know, my mum had been a Beatles fan mm. in the sixties. My dad actually was quite a committed folk revival guy in the sixties. You know, which was a lot of the context that Dylan and uh, you know Lonnie Donegan and uh, you know John Martin and you know a lot like the folk revival was a very serious cultural movement. And my dad was a big fan of the Dubliners, and he would travel to Dublin every weekend. You know, they would drink and drive down, all the way down to Dublin to hang out with the <laughs> oh, God. I know, I know, but you're talking 1960s. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? um, and, uh, but my, my dad's my dad's a, a fine singer, but he's not musical. My dad uh, lost one of his hands in an industrial accident, so he never- Oh, got, shit. Yeah, that was like, man, that happened like 50 years ago, you know. Um, and my mum, my mum is musical, absolutely. So my mum has played, uh, my mum's been in the choir, like sort of, she loves, she loves ABBA and she loves, you know, the Dubliners and she loves, uh, you know, uh, a bit of Queen and, but like, she's not, she's not a pop fan in the way that other people are, you know, I think a mm. lot of her musical taste is very frozen in that I became a mum and became so busy that it just stopped kind of territory. So she loves, yeah. ABBA, you know, she loves ABBA and likes the Beatles, but my mum's real passion is, um, is religious music, spiritual music. Um, so like my mum's very committed Catholic and she's been on the choir um, she's been on the choir in the cathedral in Uri for like 64 years or something mm. or her whole life. And, um, she, when she was younger, when I was a kid, she was, she also played the piano all of her life. She doesn't so much now, which is a bit sad because she has arthritis, but, um, and sort of she can't be arsed either, which is okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, she, she was an organist and she used to play weddings and funerals and stuff. And I used to go with her and because she was in the choir, when I was a kid, I was encouraged to sing a lot. 
and you know to be shameless about it and all that kind of thing and we all were encouraged to sing but you know there, there wasn't a lot of music in the house it was we had an upright piano which i grew up playing my mom still has the piano um but I, I didn't play the piano i just bashed on it or whatever yeah yeah my brothers and sisters were all sent to piano lessons but i wasn't because by the time i came along they were like screw this these kids <laughs> going to piano we're not doing it again screw it and of course now i'm the only one who actually plays piano in the house which is ridiculous um so yeah like it was a music there was music in the air definitely we would go to mass every sunday and we would sit in the gallery of the cathedral in Newry, the big gothic cathedral big 19th century Gothic cathedral and we would be the only people who were allowed to sit up in the gallery with the choir you know so there was a lot of there was a lot of power in that you know I was looking mm. down at an audience and listening to live music coming through a huge pipe organ and loads of people singing and you know I would say that definitely had an impact on me like that you know you you can't help but be be sort of full of music when when you're literally getting it blasted into your ears <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah that was yeah like it wasn't like there was loads of guitars around or anything like that that weren't my brother mark did play guitar when i was a kid during his kind of gnr phase but you know before you know it that was just a that was just a bashed up guitar with two strings on it it was a marlin sidewinder i remember it was nice a marlin sidewinder yeah so i think when i started getting interested in playing guitar i tried to fish that out but you know it was an electric guitar with no amp and you know it was broken beyond belief and stuff so i used to just sit about twanging swinging <laughs> yeah. on it so uh, we we made our own, you know. Yeah, and just in terms, of, just because I want to touch up on it, cause you mentioned about your mum's obviously like mm. playing in the church and being quite spiritual. Yeah. What does she kind of think of Gamma Bomb? What's her opinion on that? Well, I think my mum my mum understands that you know there's a degree of theatre to what we do, you know, mm. um, and I don't think anything we do is explicitly that anti-religion. I think what we do is yeah, you know we you know, we kind of work in a tradition the same as Hammer movies and stuff where we're not directly blasting people's beliefs, but we are mocking the sort of the drapery uh, yeah. around Christianity, largely because it's a fun fetish uh, to have in pop culture because uh, that's what happens in horror films and stuff, you know, and in a lot of the records we like. So I do remember early on before I grew my hair, <laughs> I used to dress up a bit um, and I had a cardinal costume. And I remember one of our first write-ups in the paper, it said, Philly even dresses up as a cardinal, you know, doing demented sermons and all this. And my mom actually said to me in the car, she was like, so what, what, what is this? You're dressing up as a priest or something? And I was, and, and she was like, I hope you're not, you know, and I was like, well, no, it's like, I was like, it's dressing up. Like, <laughs> I was like, I'm dressing, <laughs> I'm dressing up as a priest. I'm not being a priest. And she was like, I suppose you're right. And then that was kind of, funny, you know, so like, <laughs> She's a she's a grown woman. <laughs> I think yeah, the, yeah. she was like, "Are you mocking me?" And I was like, "No, yeah, no." I'm just <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> you know? but yeah, no. She, my mum, like my entire family, are very, I think, very proud of what we've done. My mum's the only member member of my family who hasn't seen us live, which is fair enough. Yeah. And although technically she did see us because we played, we were the house band at my brother's wedding, so she did see us, but we didn't play any horrible metal music. <laughs> we just played like. <laughs> The Drifters and Roy Orbison and stuff like that. You know? Brilliant. Which would be interesting to people who like the band. We played The Drifters and Roy Orbison. <laughs> <laughs> and so in terms of you, again, like with your own kind of musical exploration, like obviously we know you now as kind of like this vocalist, but as you, as you mentioned, like smashing around on the piano, kind of being intrigued by guitar. So where did you kind of go from? Like, did you did you actively pursue guitar or... Yeah, so, has singing always been the thing that you wanted to do? You know, I actually, I always loved to sing, but I got put, as, as it's an awful thing that happens to children, you know, I got put off it by other people. Um, I loved being in the choir and then I had a fall night with the choir teacher in school and I left 
you know, because I was 13 and I wasn't going to do a canoe shoot. And, uh, you know, then like I had like a mate who I remember I had a mate one time when I was singing and he was like, oh, your voice is awful, man. And when you're like 14, you take that really to heart, you know? Yeah. And I did. And I, I didn't want to open my mouth for God for years, to be honest, after that. I did, you know, myself and Joe from the off talked about being in a band and I was going to be the drummer. And I couldn't get my hands on a drum kit and I probably wouldn't have been capable of playing it, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> and I remember my dad, who's a bit of a wheeler dealer, ran up to the house one summer evening, ran, like arrived in a van and ran out of it carrying one ride symbol. <laughs> Honestly, Brilliant. Like, I'll be back with the rest. And I was like, oh my God, you'll be back with the rest. Never come back with the rest. I don't know where. <laughs> Don't know where you got the so I had one ride symbol and I used to sit out in the utility room playing the ride symbol um with a pair of sticks. Uh hold on. Do you, no, no, okay. Sorry, somebody come in there. Nice. <laughs> it was great podcasting. <laughs> so for a couple of years I kept, you know, in our you know, when you're a teenager, when you're like 14, 15, you kind of have these fantastical conversations where you're like, I'm the drummer, I'm the bass player or whatever, you know. Yeah. And I was constantly like, Yeah, I'm the drummer, and the lads would be like, Yeah, but you don't have a drum kit and you can't play the drums. And I'd be like, Yeah, that's true. And then a twig that the bass might be the thing. So after a lot of cajoling and playing the broken Marlin sidewinder with a couple of strings on it, I got a bass and I had and God God help us. We were we must have been on a downswing as a family at the time because all we could afford was a broken bass. <laughs> it had buzzed. So, then, so I, for for a few years I was a bass player. Yeah. Um, so I still do play bass. I have a nice bass and that was kind of my main thing. I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a bass player. And I took it, by the time I was about 16, I took it quite seriously. I was learning how to play, you know, Anesthesia. And, you know, I was um, trying to play along Stevie Wonder records. And I was listening to, you know, Stanley Clark and all these funk things and Primus. And, you know, I think until I was about 20, I was very serious about playing the bass. Um, mm. And I was all right. You know, I was all right at it. Like, you know, Joe was, Joe had much more of a talent from it from the off. Joe was the guitarist originally. <clears throat> and I remember... Um, friends of ours started a band and they asked Joe to join as a bass player and I was quite put out. I was like, I'm the bass player, you know? But, <laughs> yeah. you know, suddenly Joe had an Ibanez, a sound gear, and he was good at playing it, you know? And uh, and that was it, you know? He was he was taken off from there. Um, mm. And, yeah, so for me, bass was supposed to be the thing until uh, until the band happened, you know? And then I just, yeah. can't be arsed that. I, I have played bass in a few bands on and off, you know, but... Um, yeah, now I just play an entertain myself, you know. No, fair enough. And in terms of kind of like growing up and sort of like discovering sort of like the live side of music, like I don't really, I've got to be totally honest with this is in my naivety. I don't really know much about like the Irish music scene in terms of like alternative side of things. So was there much kind of going on in Newry or did you kind of have to go out and seek it further afield? Like yeah. was where yeah. was that all coming from? Yeah, it's kind of, Nuri's kind of the musical version of Tatooine, like, you know, there's nothing. <laughs> um, but, but much like Tatooine, there are a couple of very interesting people there. Um, and Nuri, actually, when we were teenagers, there was quite a lot of small town gigs, you know, like other teenage bands and stuff. And there was a centre in Nuri called the Magnet Centre, which was, um, like, it's still there today. It's an extremely commendable place. It's a young adult centre that really put a lot of the power in the hands of teenagers you know Joe's brother Roy was a like a signatory for the place and had keys and you know you could kind of bunk off school and go in there during the day and have a coffee and you know there were gigs in it so I think initially we were very like okay look we'll gig around the town and you know and there was there was gigs there to be had <clears throat> and we would book our own gigs and you would you get like 40 kids out of which felt like a huge amount of people 
Yeah. yeah. Maybe it was 30 kids, I don't know. But we had a, a decent friendship group who would go to these things. And um, then we kind of pushed out a bit further and we started playing in Belfast <clears throat> very quickly, very, very quickly. We went to Belfast by the summer of 2002, by July, we had played up there. And what Belfast had going was a fantastic punk scene. It had a really amazing punk scene. Now, the music we were playing didn't exist in 2002. You know, mm. like I'm sure Gary Holt would have told you he was a thrash player, but nobody could hear from him because he wasn't on Instagram, right? So <laughs> thrash was gone. We were m- m- sort of mining, mining it out by finding old tapes and CDs and buying magazines and stuff, you know, old magazines. And um, we, you know, so we would, we, there was no scene for us to play with. There, there were a few metal bands, but they were kind of Celtic metal or whatever, or sort of shit Pantera type thing. So we were really taken under the wing of the punks and we used to play in a place called Gyros or the Warzone Centre as it was called in Belfast, which was like a real, if Belfast had a CBGB's that was it, you know, it was in a big loft, mm. the Belfast Telegraph offices, uh, big exposed rafters, you know, the bogs were full of people drinking cans and smoking bag. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like when you went into the bog, you'd like CBGB's crack, you would go down the corridor into the bog and the corridor was just lined on both sides with people drinking and shouting like, you know, because the toilet was the place to be and you know, we were like babes in the woods, you know, like little short haired lads, nice little middle class lads up there in Belfast with all the punks. Like, and you know what? Like, they, they had a tremendous welcome for us. I think we had a bit of a punky attitude anyway. Um, and I think skinny, skinny, nerdy boys are accepted by punks. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so for a couple of years, like, we, we were really in the midst of that. We were playing in a bar called The Front Page in Belfast every week, every other week. And with all kinds of punk bills, and we were playing with Swell Bellies, Go-Karts, Poison Idea, Undead, Dog Toffee, yeah, Gorilla Biscuits, I think. Like loads of just hardcore and crossover bands, you know. I'm going to think mm. about it now, playing with Poison Idea and all, that's amazing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a real fucking hardcore crowd there that I had no clue about at the time. Um, so, yeah, like that was, that was kind of the first thing. Like Ireland didn't, like they just, there were Celtic metal bands and stuff. And there was a big metal website called Metal Ireland. And this guy called Karen Tracy, who has been very kind to us, ran that. So there were passionate metalheads and stuff in that early kind of internet way. And there were gigs in Dublin and stuff, but there was no thrash. And it wasn't until 2006 that we played with another thrash band. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, we'd already been in the band four years. Like, and we played in Dublin with a band called Mass Extinction, who, were, who became very firm friends of ours. <clears throat> and uh, Paul, our old drummer's brother, Simo, was their bass player. And it was sort of through them that Domo joined the band and stuff. So, you know, like suddenly around 2006, you know, six, seven, when MySpace kind of kicked off and stuff, suddenly this this genre kind of just was reborn, you know? Mm. So, like there was a scene, there wasn't a thrash scene. That's kind of the way to put it, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And in t- terms of like, before we kind of dive into Gamma Bombing a bit more, like, obviously you mentioned sort of like dabbling around with bass and, and things like that yeah. and obviously you mentioned kind of joe being kind of off with these other bands and things like that but were were you kind of in any other bands before gamma bomb took off or was but gamma bomb it and it's just kind of been sailing yeah, ever since just, yeah so like obviously gamma bomb's it in that it's a real band I, I was um me and joe were in a few bands before we were in gamma bomb i was the bass player i did end up getting to play the bass I, yeah happy to report when I was about 16, me and Joe were in a band. Our first band was called Treadkill, T-R-E-D-Kill, Treadkill. And we, um, 
that was it was a great like little teenage thing we did our hometown show on St Patrick's night when I was 16 and you know got to kiss a girl and you know <laughs> yeah my brother came down and we played whiskey in the jar and it was great you know so that was 1999 um which is crazy because it's now over 20 years since me and Joe have been playing gigs. So we, yeah, yeah. That band, and that band kind of had a few different iterations. It was then called Black Friday. Um, <clears throat> and like, we couldn't write music in, so we just played like Four Horsemen or whatever. And then I left that band and that band became Thrash Patrol, which was Luke joined the band. So Joe and Luke were like, you know, they were like, yeah, we're going to do like covers and stuff. And they had this guy singing for them. But I think he was a bit too like angsty or something. And I remember, you know, he was taking his shirt off and bashing himself in the chest with the mic like G.G. Allen. And it was kind of, mm-hmm. didn't make sense. kind of didn't make sense. But they were, you know, they were playing a bit of The Haunted and a bit of, they were trying to play Megadeth and they were playing, you know, um, The Wicker Man and stuff like that. And it was sort of, it was sort of at that point that Joe said, <clears throat> you know, Adrian's not playing with us anymore. He's not going to be our singer anymore. Do you want to come, do you want to come out in the next gig and do Aces High? And I was kind of like, I don't think I can sing that. Like that's, I don't think you can play that. But I come down to the garage, uh, down to Joe's garage. And um, they were like, yeah, try, try this song and try this song and try this song. And I ended up standing there for the whole afternoon. Had to have my back to them because I was so afraid. Yeah. Were shaking so badly, but like we did, like we did it, and they were like, "Sure, let's let's do this again next week." And uh, then we did, and then that that was it. Like, mm. me and Joe and Luke were kind of the the start of the band at Gumbom. Like, so it was only only that band really that was ever um, serious. Yeah, and then in terms of like, I guess kind of just before we kind of get into Gumbom itself, like with your sort of vocal styling and, and things like that, as you say, like you were kind of always like singing and, and sort of like trying to hit those high notes at home and things like that. But obviously <coughs> now that's kind of become a bit of a signature of yours. I suppose. So when you were kind of like starting Gamma Bomb and things like that, had you even like tried that or was it something you knew you were capable of doing? Like where did that all kind of come I from? I knew I was capable of doing that. I'd always been able to be, you know, I'd always been able to do that. But like only in the like literally like the way I did just now, as in yeah, to make that noise. Projecting your voice is a very different thing. Singing like that is a very different thing. And I think um I knew I could do it. We were drinking in Joe's garage. It all goes back to Joe's garage. We were drinking in Joe's garage one night, <clears throat> and this guy who was a bit of an Egypt was there. And Child, <laughs> Child in Time by Deep Purple was playing on the record player. And you know, he fancied himself a bit and he was all like doing that. You know, he was yeah. doing, like and I don't know what it was. I just thought, like, I'll show him up. <coughs> like, I started doing the note at it. And when it came out of my mouth, it sounded much more like Ian Gillen. You know, it was much louder. I don't know. And I, I don't, honestly didn't know really. I don't know where it came from. I was just doing it, you know. And then I was doing the big, massive high notes he does at the end. And then I was, like, overdoing it on purpose. And I actually, re- and everyone was laughing so much. You know how it is when you're 6 to 17 or whatever, like. I was just like, you know, going for it like mad and singing insanely high squeaky notes and stuff. And everybody was laughing at the fact that I was doing it and laughing at the fact that I was putting this guy out, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think around the time that Joe said, come down to the garage and rehearse with us, I remember him saying, look, I knew from that night in the garage where you were doing that, um, you know, that, that you could do this. So I wanted you mm. to see if you could sing this stuff. So to be fair, Joe, you know, Joe's a great delegator. He knows. <laughs> yeah. He knows. He knows how to get people to do stuff. He spotted it and he, he did it. So mm-hmm. yeah, like I think it took me a long time. Um, like within the band from the start, I was trying to do that kind of thing, and, and it, you know, 
we're going to actually re-release our first album soon and you know i think people will hear that it was quite unpolished and (laughs) i was really throwing myself at it it took me a long time i would argue it really took me until after i'd injured my voice and had the throat surgery and stuff to really realize how you're supposed to do it properly Um, yeah when i went to an opera teacher and stuff you know um but yeah it was always the thing that was there for me you know, a lot of my favorite singers aren't good singers, and I would say I'm in that bucket. I'm not, I don't have a nice voice, but I have a strong <laughs> voice. You know, yeah. you don't need to have a nice voice. Tom Waits and Bob Dylan don't have, McGann does not have a nice voice, but they have strong voices. And I'd like to hope that I, I you know, I'd like to hope that I, I'm in that category, not in that, not in that league. In that <laughs> <category>. <laughs> and then in terms of like getting Gamma Bomb started, as you said, like there wasn't like, a thrash scene or anything like that like you guys were kind of having to sort of like dig through like old tapes to kind of like find that sound and, and things yeah. like that but in terms of kind of like i guess the the story arc that is gamma bomb like the influences of like the horror the sort of like sci-fi the like the comedic aspect of, of it mm-hmm. were they kind of always there in the beginning or is that something that you've kind of as the band has grown, you've kind yes. of brought those elements in. Day one, day one, all the way from day one. Like things have changed in how we express those things um, or the degree to which we lean on them or whatever. But yeah, from day one. So when we were, again, it's all back to that garage. Like we used to get, me and Joe would hang out on Sundays. We hung out every day, but like on Sundays, we would get really stoned. We would smoke hash and get really stoned. And we would make massive sound. It's, because the guest house, his mum and dad's house was guest house, so they would also have loads of breakfast making stuff, you know? And we would make these enormous, like, full loaf of bread sandwich of, like, bacon and sausages and eggs and stuff, get really stoned, eat these sandwiches, and, like, sit around crying, laughing. And <laughs> what we would do is we would, like, get any scrap of paper, like an old Christmas card and, like, an old piece of paper from his dad's office anything, and we would write, like, piss-take trash lurks, and they were always trash lurks because we were so into Megadeth and Anthrax and stuff, and we were, yeah. like, we were so stupid. So kind of our, our smart RC approach was, you know, we would write stupid lyrics, you know, like we'd write a song called Thrash Potatoes or, you know, um, other, you know, um, Frankenstein Goes to Washington or, or Dave, Dave Mustaine, <laughs> sorry, Dave Mustaine Goes to Washington was one of them. <clears throat> and then we would read the lyrics out to each other and just like crease up laughing, really nerdy, yeah. like joyously nerdy stuff. And um, I think when we started the band, then, Luke was very, Luke's sense of humor was very like that too. And we were all into the same movies and stuff. So like, you know, as soon as we were writing lyrics, there was no, like, we did write like cause-based stuff, political stuff because Nuclear Assault did that, you know? And we were like, okay, that's a cool thing to do. Be punky, be right on, you know? Um, hmm. Anytime we were writing stuff that wasn't that, you know, we, we just didn't want to take ourselves seriously. So, yeah. you know, number one was making each other laugh. I would write lyrics, read them out in the rehearsal room. They would, you know, we would all laugh or not. And then we would just start writing, mm. just sing it over the top of something. And I think that approach has always been the way. In a weird way, I kind of, like, I've written songs that aren't funny and I've written songs that are kind of aping the classic metal thing of like, you know, it's more like a poem than a funny, like the way Judas Priest were overkill to it. You know, where you write like, you know, it's a message or whatever, or it's a yeah. Song phrases and I've done that but like and I think I can do that and I'm quite I quite enjoy doing that because it's as I said it's like writing a silly poem but like I can't write serious songs that aren't say about something I care about you know I can't write a serious song about loneliness or fucking you know how everyone's against me or or you know torture or whatever else <laughs> yeah I I just my natural place I go to is sort of levity and joking around with stuff and 
it's it's weird at this point now. Like there are there are songs in the new album that you know are about frivolous, fantastical concepts, but they're not full of jokes. And then there's other songs that are full of jokes. And mm. you have to entertain yourself first and foremost. And I think the fact that we're still doing that is part of the the happy marriage that we have. You know, for the most part. <clears throat> yeah. Mm, yeah. And in terms of kind of like you touched upon it there briefly, I was you know something I was going to bring up in terms of like obviously as you say like you first and foremost you want to entertain yourself and obviously a lot of like what you guys do is kind of very tongue-in-cheek but there's elements of like talking about social issues and talking about politics and and things like that so but you kind of do it under the guise of comedy in in some aspects alongside us yeah yeah so for you like how do you kind of go about like decompartmentalizing those kind of elements and sort of like wanting to get that message across but still keeping it in the gamma bomb world if that makes yeah, sense and I, I don't know it's all i just feel like we have two gears you know like it you, you know not that many people probably have but when you hear the lyrics of any of our political songs they don't tend to have jokes in them unless mm. they're at the expense of the thing that we're angry at you know yeah um so we don't tend to cross the streams hugely um and you know musically those songs tend to be the same as the other songs because our music has a very clear thing um I think, yeah, I think it's easy to compartmentalize it. It's kind of like this music represents us and we both like to have the crack and talk shite. And (laughs) we also have opinions and feelings about things and are connected to the world around us and have views and, you know, to some extent want to use our platform such as it is to to do that, you know, because that's how we saw, that's how we saw nuclear assault doing it, you know, and I think that was really Mm. cool. And the weird thing is when we started the band, we almost did that fetishistically. We were writing songs. Of course, we were anti-racist, but we were writing those songs because that was the thing 80s bands did. You know, we were yeah. like, let's do this. Let's write a song. We were going to have a song called Politics, you know, when we had the song called Racist. And like, we were just like, yeah, man, this is what bands did. Whereas, <laughs> and like, of course, we stuck at that because it is what we believe in. But like, now it's actually relevant. It's insane. Like back then, mm. like, let's have a laugh and point out you shouldn't be a racist because the world seemed like the question was decided. And now there's just such a fucking moral soup that we're all living in um, that it's it, bizarrely, it's now imperative to, to say that kind of thing. So ridiculous, really. What we were fetishizing is now actually essential, which is very <laughs> Yeah. And, and obviously you mentioned <coughs> earlier, like the, the sort of like longevity that you and Joe have kind of been playing together. But obviously just as a band in general, you've been going since 2003. Yeah. And it's obviously we're now 2020 or now on album number seven and okay. done various kind of things in between. But was there a certain point that you can remember when like people were starting maybe like outside of Ireland or maybe like further afield started taking note of Gamma Bomb and you were like, yeah, oh, people are actually paying attention to us now. Yeah, absolutely. So that was MySpace, really. You know, the fact that we were on there, you could kind of find other bands who sort of were like us. I remember seeing, I remember seeing Municipal Waste around then. Mm. Send more paramedics who were a British band who were kind of zombie themed. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> Candy Stripe or Death Orgy. There was these other bands you'd kind of hear of. Um, and Nuclear Assault came back in like 2004. Actually, yeah, 2004, five. Uh, no, that was later than that. No. Yeah, by 2000 for nuclear assault come back and we went to see them in london and then like then they just started sort of <clears throat> they just started being a bit more momentum like we did a small tour in scotland um with a band called carloff 
and you know i blew out my voice and we were playing tiny rooms like to nobody but it was punk clubs and stuff it was cool and then um we went and played a gig in london in a place called the fox in w14 in west kensington mm. and um excuse me excuse me <laughs> that was sort of part of the uk thrash kind of movement as it was called at the time which was like a website yeah. forum that we stumbled across around that time 2006 or so and we played with with other thrash bands and these guys had the clothes they had bullet belts we didn't have any, like we didn't have any like that i think luke's mum got him a bullet belt <coughs> pardon me but we didn't have anything like that otherwise and i remember like these are other thrash bands and like we, we went drinking with them and we were smoking with them and we were like this is the same this exists yeah it had the gig had people at it we didn't know who were wearing the clothes and it was like wow this is a thing here and you know it was cool lesson back together largely because of myspace i think and then, you know, it became very regular. We would travel to Birmingham and play in the Bristol Pair. <coughs> Pardon me, I'm very froggy here. But we, we would travel to Bristol on the boat. We would get the boat over and get the train uh, to Birmingham and we'd play in the Bristol Pair. And we would do that about once a month, once every two months. So oh, we were, wow. Yeah, we were doing that regular, man. We did a UK tour, a UK thrash tour in like 2007. And we did that on public transport. We went on the megabus carrying our head. Fucking hell. Yeah, man. A quid for the bus all the way down from fucking Dundee all the way down to Birmingham. <clears throat> so we, we did that and we played with all the trash bands and we played in London and stuff. And there was just, those gigs in Birmingham started getting attention. They started getting press and stuff, you know? Mm. And that was just, uh, that, was, that was the start of it. That's how we got the attention of record labels. You know? Yeah. And just in terms, before we kind of go on to sort of how like the band has grown and things like that, and kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, that the sort of, comedic element of things was there kind of from day one and I think there's something that I've always been drawn to your band with is the kind of aesthetic and I think that's a thing with yeah. thrash like well good thrash bands I'll put it in that way yeah. is that they have an aesthetic and an, and an identity yeah so again was that something that you guys talked about from like the offset was like what because like the one that I always see is like at, at shows like if someone's wearing a Gamma Bomb t-shirt, like the, the logo in that font is very iconic and you're instantly yeah. kind of drawn to it. So were they discussions you were having in those, in those early days? Yeah, the, the crazy thing, the logo, like I, I absolutely love our logo. Our logo just, our logo just came into being completely without question. Like as soon mm. that was the name of the band. <clears throat> so the name of the band was Gamma Bomb with two M's because that's what makes the Incredible Hulk, right? Yeah, um, because it was kind of a thing from it sounded big, it sounded explosive. It was a thing from a comic. We loved comics. Um, me and Joe particularly were big fans of the 1960s Incredible Hulk cartoon, which they used to show super duper early in the morning on Channel 4. Joe would get up before school, before the big breakfast was on. He would go in at like seven and he would sit in his duvet and watch 60s Spider-Man and 60s Hulk cartoons before That's the awesome. on Channel 4. So he, he would record those and then we would watch them on the weekend. And so Incredible Hulk, that was the thing. Then Joe is dyslexic and in the desk in his dad's office on, in Sharpie, Joe wrote Gamma Bomb with one M. We thought this was hilarious because it's hilarious to laugh at your friend's learning disability. So uh, <laughs> we were like, haha, Gamma Bomb. But then as soon as, as me and Luke looked at it, we said, but if they're the same number, and we're like, I don't even remember who said it. I think everybody just said it. We were like, if it's the same number of letters, you can do Star Wars, Dawn of the Dead, Masters of the Universe. Yeah, yeah. We were like, there it is. It's Dawn of the Dead, Masters of the Universe, it's Star Wars, it's Life of Brian. It's every writing that's ever had to look enormous. <coughs> like, that's how you do it, man. Your logo, it's so big, you're looking up at it. That's what the logo Yeah. Is. And seriously, from the minute, pretty much from the minute we were called Gamma Bomb with one M, we were 
drawn it exactly like that. It was it was that mm. shape. You know? So yeah, the, the logo and the aesthetic came about very quickly. I think you know when you're when you're into the kind of stuff we we're into, the comics and the movies and stuff, it kind of suggested itself. You know, we knew we wanted horror imagery. We knew we wanted uh, comic book style illustration. I think you know uh, Joe's brother Rory. <clears throat> uh, Joe's brother Rory is a, um, a a very successful creative director in in real life. And, you know, back then he was a teenager who knew how to use Photoshop and had a great mm. And uh, Rory has worked with us from the first flyer we ever did. And he designs all our album inlays and, you know, everything we do visually. Um, and I think that having a consistent style has always been our thing. And more recently, like more recently, like 10 years ago, we discovered the likes of Scumbug, um, Matt, who does all our t-shirts. And we pretty much go back to Matt every time. And Russell yeah. Michaels, who does some of our t-shirts, will go back to him every time. And then we've got Graham Humphreys, the amazing painter, who does, who's done three of our album covers now. We go back to him every time. And I think that's how you build a visual identity. Other bands hop around too much, um, you know, trying to, like, uh, go with the flow or, or to, you know, um, or to reinvent the wheel or to go with trends or whatever. And we just don't do that. Like, we have our own thing and we, we drill that. Like, I think there is good diversity between our different album covers and stuff, but having your own style is super important. And... I think like Graham is a massive part of that. You know, we have paintings on our album covers. They're not digital art. You know, they're real. They're actually yeah. real physical paintings that exist. And um, I think that kind of stuff is really important for us. The look and feel of things is, is like you wouldn't you wouldn't think of it. It takes a lot. Like Dolly Parton said, she said it costs a lot of money to look this cheap. And I said, <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of brains to sound this stupid. You know, so <laughs> um, like we agonize over visual stuff. Like we we have a, a lyric video coming at the end of this week. At the time we're recording this, and uh, we have been arguing the toss about. It's only a lyric video. We have argued the toss about it for like five days. Just what looks right, what yeah. could, what our logo should be like. All that stuff matters enormously to us, and everybody has really strong opinions on it. We're all very visual thinkers, you know, um, and we all have a lot of reference points for things. So. You know, the visual identity of the band is really important. I think we can always do more. I think Snowy is a really good direction that we're going in. I think our, you know, our stage show, our clothes, we're heading in the right direction. You know, mm. we want to just, we want to put our weight on it, as Rudy Ray Moore would have said. You know, we've got a lot of, um, we've got a lot of enthusiasm for the look of things. And I think a lot of other metal bands just do what they think metal bands should do instead. Yeah. Now, to be fair, that's maybe not a fair criticism because a lot of metal fans like basic shit. And a lot of people in metal bands maybe aren't, as visually oriented as we are, you know, where they're like, mm. oh, that's a skull, that's cool, you know, like, and I suppose it is, but it, we couldn't rest looking at something that is less than what we think it should be. Obviously, the element that you touched upon there, obviously, Snowy is an, an element that has kind of been brought into the Gamavon world. So where did that idea come from and how has it kind of evolved? Well, we always joked about, even when Luke was in the band years ago and when we were just starting out, we joked about having a mascot who is the Gamma Abominable Snowman because it was the only pun you can make with that word. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we talked about that for a long time. And then the gas thing is I was living over in London in like uh, 2018 before we made the last album and there was a knock on the door and I opened it and he was just there. Um, and, you know, he's a seven foot tall alcoholic yeti um from barbados and uh you know he doesn't have a lot to say for himself um and you know he's you know he's uh he's got a lot of, a lot of ups and downs got some pretty right-wing views gotta be honest don't always uh, don't always agree with him but he's a good lad and uh, <laughs> he, pays his, he actually doesn't pay as well he just lives in my attic uh, so he lived in my shed in london at the time and i was saying to the lads you know i've got an abominable snowman we should probably just use him 
uh, and the lads were like, don't believe you. And then we did FaceTime and they were like, right, okay, there he is. So like, <laughs> like you know, in exchange for cans, he now just does that for us. In between the last album and this one though, he's had like, he's on a real upswing now. He, his divorce is through. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's done a bit of CrossFit and he's looking great, looking a lot meaner than he used to look. He's a bit less sad looking. Um, so that's good. You know, he's shaping up a bit. He's got a bit more of an Eddie buzz about him now. Um, but you know, we like we love him. As you can tell, Snowy exists on Jim Henson rules. Snowy, yeah, yeah. Snowy, um, you know, Snowy and Kermit the Frog could easily go for a pint. He's and, and probably have. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, Snowy's Snowy's amazing for us. Um, you know, it's for me. It's like how many stupid, how many stupid childhood wishes can you make come true? Like, <laughs> yeah. And this is this is the thing about this band, right? We're not like we're not rich. Like we haven't like we've you know we've we've done cool things from the band. We all have real lives as well, right? The, the, this band is proof that if you imagine something, you can make it real. We imagined a monster, and he turned up at the door. We we made him happen. You know. What yeah. I mean? And you know we obviously have a hand in, we have a hand in shaping how Snowy looks in the album art and how he looks on stage and you know how he is on our merch and his presence. And I think it's a really cool thing. You know, bands don't really have mascots anymore. And then <clears throat> you see the people are crying out for it. You look at a band like, uh, what do you call your man, Nurgle Behemoth? You look at that band or you look at Ghost. All they are is a mascot. Doesn't mm. just a man. No, I like Ghost songwriting. So, you know, but like, it shows you how hungry people are for that, for the theatricality, for the, the cartooniness, for the, you know, the sort of superhuman aspect of it. And I think that being involved in that, I find it, incredible fun like working with people on what snowy's clothes should look like is just amazing you know he has yeah to, he's so big you have to get his clothes specially made you know um, yeah and, and when he gets a makeover and stuff working with him on that and like how he looked on the album cover i think graham really influenced how he looks you know with that album cover i think it gave us all something to shoot for and like yeah it's cool i think it's it's a thing bands should do more often i think um like here's the crazy thing we don't care what anybody thinks about Snowy because we love him so much. And, <laughs> yeah. and the reaction you get when he comes out of gigs is just amazing. Like taking him to Japan was just perfect. He came out on stage in Japan and like, you know, it's it's such a great sign. I think the, the greatest sign of all is when he comes out on stage, you can just see lots and lots of phones coming out. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And to me, that says people want to remember this. They want to tell other people about this. You know, this is ridiculous. If you're not doing well, people aren't pulling their phone out, you know. And uh, I'm really looking forward to getting out on tour with him again and uh, yeah, and just making a bigger deal out of him. And I think the new album cover art, if anybody hasn't seen the art when they're listening to this, go and check it out. See Savage, like the painting is is amazing. He looks so cool. Mm. And, you know, he's, he's literally a monster we dreamed up and now he's real, you know? So <laughs> we don't know where he's going to go from here, but like we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about plush toys. We're talking about, awesome. you know, we're maybe talking about developing our own game, like a mobile game. So there's a lot, a lot of crazy ideas, you know? Um, for my perspective, when I kind of came across Gamma Bomb, uh, a bit of storytelling here. So I uh, interned at Earache for a little while while I was at university um, and I think it was just as you as you guys had signed, or it was a little bit afterwards. But kind of going back to what we were saying before, like in regards to like the aesthetic and the logo of you guys, like obviously I saw that and I was like, oh, I don't know this band, and I was sort of like, oh, go check it out and hear you a bit more. And because obviously at the time, like Earache were a sort of like up and coming label or a bit more like reputable and things like that. So like once you'd signed to, to Earache, had you kind of seen that there was this kind of 
shift in attention and, and more ears were on your band? Absolutely, without question. It was the biggest thing that had ever happened to us at that point. Um, and it did sort of very quickly, it sort of it changed the league very quickly. We went from, you know, getting mentioned and, you know, very occasionally mentioned in, in, in the press by people who were sympathetic to us to getting a lot of coverage. And, you know, we went from having, you know, from being very much babes in the wood about the music industry and stuff through to, you know, learning about contracts and tour support and how touring works and, you know, mm. on proper extended tours for the first time. And, you know, not that it was an overnight process. We still did like our first European tour. We did that very much on floors in a van, you know, um, so that was still a very, um, it was still a very homespun kind of thing. But yeah, like getting signed was a massive deal. I remember, I'll never forget when Joe rang up and told me about it. Like I had been talking to Digby and Dan Tobin from Eric over email and stuff, you know, and and I had a feeling that the conversation was getting towards something. Mm. They'd been asking, you know, what do you all do for a living and all this kind of thing, and would you be actually willing to tour? <clears throat> and I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever. And I think we knew that they wanted to put us on a compilation. I knew that much. And then Joe rang me when I was at work. I was working for this magazine at the time. And I remember Joe rang me and his, his voice, it, there was something about his voice. He sounded like something was wrong, like he'd have bad news. <laughs> you know that thing where you talk to someone on the phone, you're like, whoa, hold on, you better tell me somebody died here. You know, just he had a really tremulous voice. Yeah. And I was like, are you all right? What the hell's going on, man? He was like, um, I was just talking to Eric and the one assign us. And I was like, I remember both my, it was like little Richard said, your big toe shoot up in your boot. Like both my legs shot out in front of me under the desk and like, I, and like involuntarily kicked the desk. And uh, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And loads of people around me in work thought I had bad news. Um, yeah. Like, cause I was just working this office job. Like, and all these people were like, oh fuck, looking over the desk better. And I was like, no, 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 don't, don't be looking at me. Like, and then when I got off the phone, I was just like, oh my God, I've got a record deal. Um, and I don't think people massive, like some people, younger people were like, wow, that's amazing in the office. But, you know, I think in retrospect, that was, you know, the, the nail in the coffin of that kind of having an office job at that time for me, you know, within a couple, yeah, of, yeah. Within a couple of months, I'd quit and uh, was doing music full time at that point. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was incredible, incredibly exciting around that time to do that. And as I say, we were very much neophytes. We hadn't a clue. <clears throat> you know, we weren't, we hadn't a clue what was going on, you know, like mm. we're having to learn everything, like how does merch work, how does, how does having a tour manager work, you know, everything like that, which to touring bands is kind of the, the basics, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think, I actually think back on that time with great fondness, you know. And obviously like I mentioned kind of like from that, like your kind of stock, like exponentially kind of rose, like, as you say, you were kind of getting on these sort of, bigger tours and things like that but obviously an, a thing that's kind of been not prevalent but has happened throughout the sort of like the career of your band apart from sort of you and joe and luke to an extent like the, there's been sort of member changes throughout the period of gamma bomb yeah. but obviously like you've still continued on obviously there's been slight variations in in sort of theme and sound and things like that but for you, obviously, being one of the key founders and obviously the longest serving members sort of thing, yeah. how have you kind of seen the dynamics change in that time up until where we are now? I mean, the personal dynamics in the band? Yeah. You know what? I think 
Not much, to be honest. I think we've been very lucky in that we started as a group of friends who started a band and we had like a shared sense of humor and we were all into the same stuff and we had the same social circle. I think we were very lucky in that everyone who has joined the band since has been incorporated into that to greater or lesser extent. I think Paul and Damo, when they joined the band particularly, were very much just brought into the fold. They were going to the same New Year's Eve parties as the rest of us with all our old friends from our hometown. Mm. You know, they were hanging out and going for pints with our other friends. You know what I mean? Like my mate Ross is Damo's mate, you know, like all this yeah. thing. Like, you know, so we've been very lucky in that sense. It's not as if, you know, and John the same way. Like John to a slightly lesser extent because we've all been a bit older since John's really been in the band. But like, you know, our mates know John and like my missus knows John. And, you know, like it's all very, it's all very integrated. Like, so we've, dynamics wise, we've always been like a gang of four to five lads who know each other quite well. There's never been a bit of a, uh, who's the stranger or, you know, suddenly, <laughs> yeah, or like suddenly Domo's in charge or, do you know what I mean? It's not, I think other bands who have a bit of longevity, which surprisingly now we have, they tend to crystallize around one to two members of the band who get all the honey, you know, like they get the money mm. or they get to call the shots or whatever, but we haven't done that. We've remained as a kind of a, a unit, you know? Mm. I think it says, I think it says a lot, like, you know, it can have its downsides. If you're a band with one person making all the calls, that's probably very attractive because you can make all the money and you can make the decisions and, you know, like a band like Ghost couldn't exist unless it was that guy's idea. You know, you could yeah. have a gang of people, um, a gang of people with their own opinions when you can see how tightly he can, he stage manages all their creati creativity, like, so it can be fraught in that, <clears throat> especially on this album on Sea Savage, we tried to do everything by majority decision and that was politically extremely difficult. Like there were weeks where we were just arguing and arguing about songs, you know, mm. using the record and so And that's fine. I actually think that's totally worth it. Um, ultimately, because I would rather it was a representation of what we as a group want, you know? Um, yeah. But like, yeah, like I'm, I'm really, like I'm really proud to be able to say that the band is uh, pretty much an equal partnership. I think there were albums in the past where Joe and me wrote nearly all the music. You know, there were a couple of albums there uh, where Joe wrote basically everything and I wrote basically all the lyrics. And that's not the case on this record. And I'm really pleased with that. It was written kind of four way split, which is just good. That's good for the band, you know. Mm. It's good, good and for the of the band. You, you touched upon sort of like the, the longevity that you guys have had. And obviously, we've kind of mentioned previously around like sort of the the themes and the aesthetic of the band obviously and i don't mean this in a disparaging way but obviously where there are obviously like comical elements to gamma bomb and i and i guess like, oh, yeah. obviously within within like the thrash world like you can make those comparisons with the likes of municipal waste and and suicidal tendencies that they do have jokes like uh yeah so but like are you surprised that like i guess this thing that you created that has these kind of jokey elements of like these songs about like ghouls and horror that you're still doing it these all these years yeah, on. Honestly, yeah, I am. I'm astonished, but it's like, yeah, it's really hard to have something on. It's really hard to have perspective on your own life, you know, in any respect. Mm. Um, and the band is very much now part of my life. I think around the time that we got signed, it went from being a thing we did well before that, to be honest. It went from just being a thing we did to being something that was, well, it went from being a hobby to being a thing we did. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think when I met my missus and stuff, which is 10 years ago, around the time Tales came out, we met when Tales came out. 
you know, like I was very clear to her at that time, like this is the thing I do and I'm not going to stop doing it. Like, you know, I don't want to stop doing it. So like, yeah, I think what surprises me, is, like what, what, what really, what really kind of does it for me is the fact that you can make your ideas real. That's what I find the most amazing thing about the band. It's like, mm. we have ideas, like no matter how silly the idea is or how trivial the idea is, you can have an idea and you can bring it literally just from being a notion in your head or a scribble on a piece of paper to being real. And then suddenly it's real and it belongs to other people and they have their opinions about it, you know? And yeah. uh, they like it or they don't like it or they talk on the internet about it or they like, you know, draw their own pictures or write their own music and stuff. And I find that incredibly fulfilling. I think that, you know, <clears throat> I think that makes life very rich and it teaches you things on a personal and interpersonal level um, that I think you can, you can, you can only get in, in very few other areas of human endeavor. I think people who maybe do, maybe people who excel at sport maybe and that kind of thing, you know, uh, might have similar experiences or, or I don't know, people who travel very widely or do very good vocational work with other people or something must get it. But like the ability to change your, the world around you, um through notions that you have is crazy you know mm. um it's it's a very powerful kind of feeling and once you've done it um it's very addictive you know like right after we finish making an album i always feel incredibly fertile with ideas like <laughs> yes yeah. once we're finished i'm always just like i could fucking start tomorrow because start another record tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. you know or like let's make a solo album now let's fucking do this let's make an let's make a film let's do that you know and i think you know, it, it has suited me very well and I think it suits the lads very well um, because we're that kind of people, you know, we're, we're the kind of people who are always making something, you know. Mm. When I'm not doing band stuff, I'm writing and I'm, you know, I write stories and I'm a fucking, and I write articles for people and, uh, you know, and I'm producing like different kinds of music, like making little synth music and other things. And, you know, Joe's making other kinds of music as well. And Domo constantly, uh, you know, produces like orchestral film score music. And oh wow, JR has his own, uh, well, Domo is a very accomplished composer. He has a, he has a, a master's distinction degree in composition from Trinity College. Oh, awesome. He's got a first in music and a distinction master's in composition. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't think it to listen to our fucking music which, like, <laughs> and jr you know he has his own death metal band called grot and he and i are working on our own side project as well and so like we're doers you know that's what we like to do like we make things and and uh i think that that is the thing that keeps you going you know that's the thing mm. and that's that's how it ends up being 18 years to be honest yeah i think a happy happenstance of actually being friends with the people in the band and with having realistic expectations and continuing to have lives outside of the band. I think those things are all really important because people we know who were more successful than us um, ground to a halt or fell apart because they didn't have those things in place, you know? Mm. But obviously like a big part that was sort of part of your personal history was the kind of <coughs> surgery that you had on your, on your voice. And obviously yeah. As a vocalist, like that's got to be something that's sort of like quite worrying and things at the oh, time. So, extremely, extremely, yeah, yeah. So, can you talk me through like what, like obviously the process of you kind of like discovering what the issue was and then kind of okay. coming to terms with that? And it was really and weird. Like, like a couple of things happened. Like so, all, all, you know, all my life growing up, my mum's a nurse and she always used to say, if you're clearing your throat, don't be sitting going, <clears throat> you know, she'd be saying, like, do one good sharp, <clears throat> like clear your throat. 
Yeah. And that was always her advice. So that was always innately what I did. And we went and played Headbangers Open Air and the sound, it's an outdoor stage in this kind of farm in Germany, really cool festival. And we're playing on the stage. It was sweltering hot and Kevy, who was playing guitar for us, was arguing with the sound man and the mix was awful. And whatever song it was, I went to do a high note and it just, it went like a squeaky noise. And I was... (laughs) And we'd been drinking all day and it was just a, co- a concoction of every stupid thing. You know, I didn't know how to sing properly on any of those records up to tails. You know, I was just throwing my voice at the wall, really. And, yeah, you know, then like being helped along by our producers to fucking sound like I knew what I was doing. Um, and I remember after that, I was hoarse all day. And then I got like, a, I think, a chest infection or something. And I remember I was walking along Eden Quay in Dublin one morning in either the spring or the winter. It was cold. And I was going somewhere first thing in the morning and I was like coughing loads and I felt like something was in my throat. And I remember doing like one big hard clear, like a big, uh, and then I was like, holy shit, I've done something. Actually, oh shit. I actually felt like I'd done something. My voice was like, uh, and I had like a voice like that. I was talking like that. And, uh, for, and now I had previously had, uh, what do you call them? So that was a polyp that I got, which is a permanent thing, but I had had uh, vocal those other things, nodules before. Yeah. Nodules are like a thing that goes away. So whenever we did, um, I think it was the tour for Tales, I had nodules after that. And I had gone to the, the ear, nose and throat hospital and they said, you have nodules, leave your voice alone for a while. And after about a month, they went away. And my voice went back to normal. And at the time I was like, fuck, I must have nodules now. And when I eventually, and I came in for weeks, my voice didn't come back. So I went to the hospital, got a camera up the nose. And uh, they said, yeah, you have a polyp, which is like a version that doesn't go away. It's like a rupture in your vocal cord. Yeah. And uh, because I told them that I was a singer, um, they put me to the top of the queue. They, they listed me as a professional voice user. And uh, they put me to the top of the queue for surgery. Um, and I, I think it was like 2012 or 2013. Probably there's a long story. I should cut it short. Um so I went in and I got this uh, throat operation, which was t- like scary. I'd never, like apart from being a kid and having dental surgery, I'd never had like, you know, uh, anesthesia or anything like that. Yeah. And they knocked me out and, uh, you know, and then I remember when I woke up, I was like uh, absolutely just like so out of it and stuff. But then I went and did a bit more therapy after that with, a, with this speech and language therapist and she was like, you're cured, you know? <clears throat> and it left me kind of with, a bit of a legacy thing where like my speaking voice came back after a month or two, but like that high end of my singing voice kind of didn't. Uh, yeah. You know, I spent a long time, like a long time over the course of the time that we were making, like when we made terror tapes, to be honest, I still was not recovered. It takes about two years really to recover from that kind of surgery till your voice is totally fine. And, uh, when we were making tarot tapes, I had gone, done a bit more training and I was taking my voice very seriously. And I think I got good stuff out of my voice, even though it was very limited in its range. Uh, and then when we did Untouchable Glory, I I remember being in the studio and Scott saying, could you try high stuff? And I actually kind of was afraid. Mm. I kind of was like, I think maybe I did like one note or something. That, see, I'd been doing it in the morning, every morning in the shower. I'd been trying to go up and up and I just couldn't do it. And like, you know, my voice would just go... At a certain point, yeah, or, or a whistling sound would come out, and I was like, "Holy shit, man!" Yeah, you know, I was. So it was a combination of things. I hadn't done it, so I was afraid to do it. And uh, cycle out. Your voice is, is very, very. Your throat and your voice are very closely connected to your, you know, your emotional state and your mental well-being. 
you know, like in, in Ayurvedic medicine, they always say that, you know, your heart chakra is here in your throat, you know, and it's the same kind of thing as when you're going to cry, you feel it in your throat first, don't you? You know, yeah. you get that kind of, you know, when somebody answers the phone, you can, you can look like you're happy when you're annoyed, but you can't seem like you're happy. <laughs> yeah. Like your throat is very intrinsic to how you relate and how you feel. And I think that my feelings were very tied up in having this throat injury, you know, like a lot of fucking pride and fear and ego and all these other things. And whenever we went to make speed between the lines, I went to, actually around the time we did in Touchable Glory, I went to an opera teacher in London, a woman called Edith Arad, an Israeli woman. And she was like a proper opera industry person. I used to train people to do West End shows. And she was like Yoda, you know, she would like hit me and stuff. <laughs> yeah. And Mr. Miyagi, she was like really tough. She like slap you in the guts if you went stand right and all, you know. <laughs> like happy on the chin and all you know you were standing along what are you doing you know and so i went to her for a couple of months and i found that it was much like my technique was much stronger then so my, my normal singing voice was much stronger for touring and you know i was able to be much more operatic on untouchable glory in terms of like you know that kind of thing and when we went to make speed between the, i don't know if there's the amount of detail you wanted but this is the story no 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 it's perfect when we went to make speed between the lines i was recording the demos and i remember i was doing R.I.P.U. or whatever the song was and it was the first demo and as soon as I set up the mic I was just like oh like it just came out like literally yeah I'm fucking screaming out and it was great and when we had finished making that album I was in the ear and I was in sort of about something else and you know they were saying you still have a scar from I still have a scar basically on my vocal fold from where the polyp was but they were saying that my my voice has healed around it so my, okay. my voice has now learned to use parts of my vocal cord that aren't for high notes to make the high notes. Uh, oh, wow. So it's not, yeah, so just your body just heals around things, you know? Yeah. So I was very lucky on that front. And I think a combination of kind of being able to get over that and the opera training and getting a bit of confidence back means that I feel much more assured about my singing now. You know, I feel... Mm. I don't make the kind of mistakes I used to make back in the day. Like I don't, you know, fight against the volume of the band when I'm singing. If it's not loud enough, I just don't sing any louder. Like I just yeah. trust people out there can hear it. And if they can't, that's somebody's problem. Um, you know, and I don't like smoke loads and I would only have maybe one or two beers before I go on. I wouldn't drink much. And then I don't stay up late screaming, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like the first time I ever seriously lost my voice, we were on tour with Bonded by Blood in Europe. Um, we went out on the Reaper Bahn in Frankfurt. Is Frankfurt where the Reaper Bahn is? Hamburg. Hamburg, yeah. In the Reaper Bahn, and we were out in these fucking CD pubs in the Red Light District all night. And at one point, we went into one, and uh, they were playing Tom Jones, and I was completely pissed. And I started screaming Tom Jones lurks because I was I'm brilliant doing so much. And when I woke up in the morning, I was like, uh, 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 so. <laughs> You know, staying up, smoking joints and screaming at prostitutes probably isn't really nice uh, for us. <laughs> In terms of like when you kind of like realised there was something sort of like wrong and obviously once you kind of like had the surgery, was there ever like, whether it be like a personal thing or like a psychological thing, like a point where you kind of thought, I can't do this anymore? Or were you just determined to kind of like relearn and retrain sort of you know, thing? There probably were points like that. Um, there probably were, but I don't remember them. There mustn't have been, mm. there must have been quite tran trans transitory moments. I know that definitely there was a bit of 
fractiousness after a couple of years where Joe would be like, you need to go back to singing lessons, you need to get your voice back. And I was quite insecure about that. Um, of course, he was right. Um, but I, I think that was about it, really. I don't think there was a... I don't think there was really a we're not doing this anymore. You know, I think there was about a year. Maybe yeah. Joe, I think when I injured my voice, Joe went and did a gig in Germany. He sang um, a festival, a fly out, a fly in festival that we did. And Joe sang that. I think maybe Joe sang two or three gigs. But that was it, really. I don't think there was ever a serious um, conversation about not keeping going or anything because, you know, albums are like two years apart anyway. And, I think mm. part of making terror tapes was to prove, or yeah, part of making terror tapes was to kind of prove that we could survive that. You know, Damo injured his hand very badly. I lost my voice and had surgery. Luke left the band. We had a war with our record label, you know, so it was kind of, we had to make an album in order to prove that we could exist, I think, you know? Yeah. Well, if we kind of jump forward, obviously, to where we are now, obviously, Sea Savage, by the time this episode goes out, will be out into the world, most likely. Um, but just in terms of kind of, I know we've kind of spoken about themes and stuff before, but obviously this one has a very obvious theme to it. So why why the Nautical theme for, for this record? Um, I've always been interested in the sea. Um, grew up near the sea. And myself and Joe have always been in, the, you know, kind of ships and you know, kind of ships and planes and submarines and helicopters and tanks. That's kind of our thing. Mm. Um, I think a couple of things that I was reading and that me and Joe were reading and looking at, watching kind of um, came together into the theme. So I think the big thing for me was like two years ago, I uh, read Moby Dick and I kind of was challenging myself, right? You know, when I'm on the tube, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to read instead yeah i've got this gorgeous big hardback of moby dick which i have on my shelf here and it's a very imposing book you know <laughs> and i told myself right i'm gonna go back into reading by actually reading a big difficult book yeah. um <laughs> yeah. and, I, and i read moby dick and it was it's just it's the best book i've ever read it's amazing and it just made such a huge impact on me as a person and it made me very interested in all that kind of uh you know victorian and Victorian and uh, like maritime history and you know the, the the culture and the 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 um the symbology and the ritual and the knowledge of you know um sailors and and the maritime world and I think around the same time Joe I think there was something with Joe as well Joe was reading up a lot about the Connemara and Retriever disaster which happened basically outside his house <laughs> in 19 uh, 1909 I think it was mm. but um so we were both kind of like reading things and stuff. And I was reading short stories by William Hope Hodgson, a, a British short, short story writer, horror writer. Um, and he, a lot of his stories are maritime. He's kind of Edwardian um, horror, but a lot of his are set at sea. And um, so it was kind of a few things like that. And then we both watched The Lighthouse. And I think we watched The Lighthouse within a week of each other. And we were both just like, yeah, this is... Like this maritime thing is just fucking brilliant, isn't the lighthouse? Yeah, yeah. And then I think on the first, I think the very first writing session, which was around now last year, Domo and Joe came to my house, and I remember we were just talking, and I said, "What about Sea Savage as a song title?" And we all went, "Yeah, that's cool." And <laughs> yeah. literally, that was just a title, and we were like, "That's a really cool title." And then, like as we wrote the album, like that's so Jr. wrote the music for Sea Savage. I demoed it. I think pretty much from the demo, it was just done. Like we, we recorded it again for the album, but the demo was pretty much exactly what there is. 
um, apart from maybe the sailor went to sea thing or whatever. I think I put that in because my son has a my son has a big book of children's Irish children's bedtime rhymes and Sailor Wind yeah. is one of his favourite things in it and I've always thought that there's something really creepy about that so I stuck that in um, and that was kind of like yeah so like when it came time to then compile the album and actually think about what the theme for the record should be we always try to think about what could a visual theme be you know what would the inlay look like what you know what could tour posters or the social media stuff or the merch look like and you know on Untouchable Glory it was um, exploitation movies and Speed Between the Lines, it was like paperback novels and, you know, we were, we're always just trying to do different things. So I think Victoriana and Victorian theatre posters um, kind of became the thing. And that mm. made sense with Sea Savage and Sea Savage was the coolest title on the album. And, you know, the song was really good. So we were like, yeah, okay, this is good. I think Joe has described it very accurately as it's a concept album in the same way that Power Slave is in that the concept is two songs deep. <laughs> You've got the cover art, the inlay, and two songs, and good luck, good luck to you, sir. <laughs> and just because, I, obviously, we've we've spoken about like the sort of how you've kind of grown the aesthetics before, and obviously, Snowy being a big part of that, and obviously, like just in the sort of story of of this record, obviously, the whole kind of thing around the SS Gamma Bomb, yeah. and obviously, like I know at the moment live shows aren't a thing, but like, have you? This might just be me ho- hoping in some aspect. Have you talked about like bringing the SS Gamma Bomb to life in some shape or form? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're we're totally planning that at the minute. So, like, one of the, one of the things that I think is good about our band is we are quite punky and organic in how we do our gigs. Like, we're not mm. polished. We talk a lot. We joke a lot. We interact with the audience quite a bit. We do a lot of fun and games with the audience. You know, like the Freddie Mercury thing, and you know joking around and taking the piss and running around and stuff so like i think we've always wanted we've always focused on that and i think what we need to do is retain that and and kind of we want to put more of a big show on and i think you know we took snowy to japan with us and we took him on a uk tour and it was just brilliant and i think um kind of up in that theatricality is a big thing so yeah i know we've you know we've got our costumes now and uh snowy has his costume and uh we're working on backdrop and uh things to dress stages up and you know, we're, we've got a couple of very cool ideas, but yeah, the nautical yeah. thing, like the nautical thing and kind of, uh, I think the the only thing I can say really is like the album cover is the key to what we're going to do with the stage. Right, okay. So like, yeah, we're going to have much more of that, much more effects kind of <laughs> happening. Yeah. And I can't really say anything else about it, but that is the plan. And we have just been booked uh, for a major European metal festival, which will hopefully go ahead next year, if not in 22. And we're going to bring a whole show to that. Um, awesome it's going to be great and obviously with like the record itself a lot of it obviously was was recorded this year which i think like in terms of in terms of like turnarounds like that's incredibly impressive like because a lot of bands they'll record an album like a year to 18 months prior it's actually released but you've done it in like double quick time sort of thing so we sort of had to um so we started writing without any real idea of when we would release it, um, obviously not knowing what would happen this year. And then whenever we actually signed to Prosthetic, EJ was like, well, you know, we want to put an album out in 20. And I remember talking to him and being like, yeah, well, what, what does that mean? He was like, well, you know, you could put it out October, November, December. You would need to finish it in July. And I was like, yeah, but it's fucking, it's February. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. 
And he was like, yeah, you know, so, you know, do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had to shout the lads. I shouted the lads and I was like, record label said they want to put it out at Christmas. And the lads were like, you can't do that. That's impossible. And I was like, I, and I, I was just saying, like, I think we all need to get over the shock of hearing this and just start work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we did. We got over it. And within a week or two, we were like, fuck it. Like, yeah, like we made a plan and we stuck to it. And we had been writing at a very high tempo already. Like we'd been writing, we'd been very prolific in the writing for the record. Like, like since November to February, we'd already written like six or seven songs or whatever. So it wasn't a massive stretch to... You know, I think in total we wrote like eighteen or nineteen songs. I know, I know. At one point we had twenty-five pieces of music. Mm. Some of them were just a bit, you know, or no yeah, yeah, or you know, a bit of a song that became half another song later. And some of them were full demos, and some were singing over bits of songs and stuff. But there were twenty-five pieces of music, and then we got that down to like I think there's twelve on the record, fourteen all together, two on the Japanese release. So like, w w I think we had like another four songs we didn't even record. So like we did it and like I'm really pleased with it and we recorded it off our own bat with Domo as the producer, which made a huge mm. difference to how the record was made and I think it's instilled a lot of confidence in it. So like, it's funny, I think people will consider it, hopefully will consider it one of our best records and I think what we're hearing from fans is I think in line with that, which is really exciting and like I'm really proud of it and I think, you know, we'll always look at it as quite a special record because of how fucked up this year was yeah and you know how we did it off our own bat in record time and it's i think it's really good you know it's um it's a good place to be in it didn't happen by accident you know we tried really hard to make it what it is and did you kind of enjoy that sort of like challenge in some aspects as, yeah, as you say like kind of getting that news in february yeah, and no, having to turn it around so quickly I, I loved it I, like i really like the annoyance <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I, I loved it I, I had a great time making it it was like it was hard but like I love the project and you know it you know parts of it were quite fraught the politics around choosing which songs and what direction the record would go in musically and stuff was quite difficult but um honestly it was it was just great fun like I built a blanket for it in my garage and you know during log after we did the lockdown single we kind of took that as a detour to see if we could record you know yeah. And then that worked. Domo produced it. We recorded it remotely and we were like, okay, let's just do this. So like I hung out in a blanket fort all summer with Domo um, doing the vocals. And, you know, then when it was done, you know, we, I had to really hustle to put together the, the Sea Savage video. And we went and shot that in the autumn when things eased up in terms of the lockdown. And that was great fun. And yeah, I think it's, um, it was, it was a great experience. I didn't have a lot else going on this year, you know? Yeah, I just spent the whole year hanging out with my kids and my wife and uh, kind of, you know, t taking up things to eat up my time. Like, you know, I grew vegetables and did some work <laughs> yeah. and, you know, hiked and took some drugs. <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of, that's what I've done all year. So having this record um, has made a big difference. It's funny, you know, like the reviews are starting to come out now and, and, um, <clears throat> Obviously, it's it's not intentional. I think it's more just a reaction to the time that the record is coming out. But there's kind of a there's a really um, the album has taken on a strange significance for people because it is a fun escapist piece of music, uh, like piece of recording. Yeah, has come out in the winter when everyone is stuck at home and has had a really tough year. I think a lot of people have really taken a lot of cheer from the record. 
I think it's really cheering people up, which is yeah, crazy. yeah. Like, I mean, our music is always intended to be, you know, fun and uplifting and, you know, exciting. But, like, I genuinely think it's acting as a kind of a medication for people. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. like, I'm so. I'm so honored that people are saying that, you know, like our review in Kerrang mm. came out today and that's what it basically said. It, yeah. And it said, if you're sick of all this, uh, this record will, will fix it for you, which is yeah, an incredibly, uh, an, an incredibly uh, on, honor, honorable feeling to have, you know, like and actually help people. That's incredible. If you're not. <laughs> and just before I start to sort of like wind things up, sure. obviously you've kind of mentioned obviously, like your family life obviously at the moment like spending a bit more time with with family but if for instance if we take 2020 didn't happen like yeah. gamma bomb would still be out and touring and stuff how do you kind of find a balance of of that kind of i know you said like when you met your your wife obviously that was a conversation you had like that yeah, this was yeah. a part of your life but obviously when kids come into it it changes dynamics so how have you found that balance so like, um over the last couple of years like the inevitability when you have small children you know, as people who have kept an eye on the band will know that we haven't gigged as much over the last couple of years. We've mm. uh, we've tried to strike a balance of doing fewer shows, but of better quality, you know, do some festivals, do some touring where we headline and just try to cover things off that way. Um, you know, people in the band have careers, but we all have a lot of flexibility as well. You know, Joe owns his own hotel and JR is a super computer programmer. So, you know, he's allowed <laughs> to do whatever the fuck he wants, you know. Um, so like... Yeah, we sort of balance it against our responsibilities and we, we take the piss as much as we can is kind of the um is is the uh is is the secret, you know. But yeah, like yeah. like I know people I know people from bands and you know it's not a it's not a uh, a character judgment on them, but like people I know in bands have, you know, I've been on tour with them and they've said things like, Yeah, I missed my kid walking for the first time, I've missed, you know, I missed my kids whatever, like all these different life moments and I I never wanted to be that person. Yeah. So like I have spent I've deliberately spent loads and loads of time with my kids. Like my son's four and my daughter's two. So I was literally there when they walked and talked and you know, I'll be there when they go to school and all that kind of thing. I'm not willing to sacrifice any of those moments. Um and you know what? Luckily we, we don't have to. Like we're not one of these bands like, you know, instruction you have to gig 150 weeks a year or 150 days a year. Yeah. To, in order to break even or whatever like we just you know we um we tried to do it our, our, our own kind of way we did it our own comfort zone you know which i think was advice i think it was one of the guys from sodom or maybe tankard who gave us that advice we saw him he was just like oh man we don't we don't kill ourselves we do the amount of gigs we want and we have lives out there. yeah yeah they're like we you know we don't have to gig in order to survive we all have other things in our lives so like you know that allows us to keep doing it and i think years ago I would have felt very cagey about admitting that we have lives outside of the band because it would have seemed like you weren't a rock star or whatever. But to be honest, <laughs> yeah. I kind of think, um, you know, fuck that. Obviously, that's just talking. <laughs> but I actually do think it's probably better for people, especially young people who have aspirations about music, to hear that. I think like the most rock and roll thing you can do is be an actual grown up who still goes and plays in Japan. I think that's the most. Yeah, fun. yeah. You know, like. You, know, you can raise kids and still go and play a whack and you know i think that's okay <laughs> that's all right you know yeah. cool uh philly how i usually like to end these is to ask my guests what their favorite song is but with a bit of a twist and obviously 
at the moment we're during lockdown so this answer might change because yes. you haven't had a chance to play any of the new songs live but we're going to go with it anyway so what's your favorite gamma bong song that you'd like to play live and why oh i thought you meant my favorite song by someone else oh no 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 of your own what's my favorite song on my own to play fuck i don't know man it's hard <laughs> i don't know oh, jesus um well i think uh, I have a lot of affection for a song like um, Ninja Untouchables probably because most like the last gigs we did were in Japan and when we played yeah. that song in Japan it was just like mad drugs I felt like I was on mad drugs because people, <laughs> people reacted so hilariously to the music you know? um, I think Ninja Ninja Untouchables is a brilliant song because the audience goes hoo-ha and that's always very funny yeah. Um, you know so you get you really get a lot out of playing it you know you can kind of hear people getting getting behind it um, six six sixteen is a good tune. Um, for playing live, what else? Hammer Slammer tends to be good fun because, like, a song like that that you've been singing for Jesus Christ, I've been singing that song for like thirteen years or whatever now. Like, you kind of don't have to try. Yeah, yeah. Or like, you can kind of be a passenger in your own car. Like during that song, you can kind of just hang out, sing the lyrics. The audience know the chorus. They get behind it, and that's really good fun. So you can kind of spend the spend that song having a think and enjoying the experience, whereas like maybe other newer songs that you're trying quite hard to deliver on, you're kind of at work, you know. Yeah. Whereas I think like an old song like that, you can it's like a baggy jumper. You can just stick it on and enjoy yourself, kind of thing. Um, I've always enjoyed doing short songs like Mussolini Mosh and stuff. Um, any of the anti-fascist stuff is always really good fun because you can really see the audience getting like you can really see the people in the audience who understand it and how fucking angry they get thinking about it. And it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, you feel you feel like you're doing a small act of good when you play a song like Mussolini Marsh. Yeah, idiot, you know. Um, yeah. Um, my favorite song by someone else at the moment is <laughs> I've discovered this playlist of uh, <clears throat> I've discovered this playlist of 1960s French music on uh, Spotify. Okay. Uh, and there's a song called Laissez tromber le fil by Francois Gall, I think her name is. And she was like, okay. France Gall, France Gall. Um, and she was a 1960s French pop star who was uh, in this genre called Yeah Yeah. And Yeah Yeah was a European reaction to the Stones and the Beatles. Oh, nice. So they had their own little kind of beat uh, thing going on. And uh, yeah, it's fucking brilliant. It's like really kitschy, 60s, girly, sexy pop. Like, it's fucking great, you know? So, oh, let's check it out. But I'm listening to it home. Let's say Tom Bellefield by Franz Gall. There you go. Check it out. Perfect. Tell them I sent you. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Philly, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, hopefully, we'll be seeing you guys touring sooner yeah. rather than later. You'll, and... you'll probably be, unfortunately, driving our touring van, Tim. So, uh... well. Well, I hope so. I hope so. That'll be the that'll be the dream. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much for having me on. No worries. Take care. See you later. Dad. Cheers, Tim. So there we have it, folks. Again, a huge thank you to Philly for taking some time to have a little chat with me. As mentioned, uh, Gamma Bomb's new record, Sea Savage, is out now on. Uh, prosthetic records you can buy it physically wherever or stream it on your chosen music streaming platform as always you can keep up to date with what gamma bomb are doing on all their various social media platforms which will be linked in the description notes of this episode 
Um, just to reiterate, I've said it about three times already. Next week, we will be having our Albums of the Year uh, annual episode. And then we'll be having a little break until New Year's Day. Um, but as always, if you like what you hear on this show, please give us a rating, subscribe, review on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. Um, it really, really does help. But yeah, that's I'm going to keep this outro as short as possible. Um, so thank you again for listening to the Justin Insight podcast and I'll see you soon.